We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Welcome to Fred Film Radio. I'm Amani Mohammed. Fred Film Radio, sono Paolo De Marchi. Tantanni sono Senso Musokino, hanno showcase. Fred Film Radio, sono Dana Knight. Clémence Perilatour for Fred Film Radio, en direct du Festival de Cannes. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema, with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Micucci. This is the 74th episode of our long-standing feature-length radio show, the origins of which can be traced back to the early days of the pandemic. <laughs> Remember those? Uh, but this very episode must also begin with a very... Very important announcement, for it will be my last Big Fred Tuesday. That's right. By mutual consent, Fred Film Radio's higher powers and myself have decided to shut it down. Since mid-2020, it has been great to stay connected with the international film community, especially during the lockdowns. I also did my best to interview people from all parts of the globe, following a personal mission statement that I have long established for myself to promote a multicultural cinephilia. Aside from producing and conducting these interviews, I edited all of the audio files, I wrote all the scripts, did all the research that needed to be done, and filled out all of the forms that needed to be filled out. It was certainly a labor of love, uh, more than anything else, to be honest. But... Uh, I love cinema, and I also love talk radio, and being the most prolific interviewer on the film festival circuit for the better part of this decade, creating content from all four corners of the globe has been an intense but rewarding experience. In the past few years, I've created just about 2,000 podcast interviews. Uh, but now the time has come to seek new challenges, and I thank Fred Film Radio for giving me my start. Uh, you will still occasionally be hearing my voice on these audio waves, but uh, not as much. Uh, to some, that may even be a relief. But uh, it's not time for that just yet, and we do have a brand new show to get to. Today, I share with you my conversation with one of the most fascinating, experimental, or, as he would put it, unconventional filmmakers of our time, Edgar Pera, talking about his latest film, presented in this year's program of the International Film Festival Rotterdam. For my final Celluloid hero segment, I will celebrate the life and legacy of the great Iranian filmmaker, Abbas Kiarostami, and then, of course, you've got to stay tuned for those popcorn and sodas in our conclusive popcorn classic segment. Uh, we'll also be revisiting some of the goodies from the fabled Fred Film Radio archives and much more. So, my suggestion to you for the last time on the BFT is to fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. The Lost Daughter was a stunning directorial debut and one of my favorite films of last year. Angela Cerbi had a chat about it with its director, Maggie Gyllenhaal, at last year's Venice Film Festival, where it premiered. Take a listen. You're here. This is your first film as a director. How does it feel? 
It feels amazing. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Uh, the film is taken from a book by Elena Ferrante by the same title that you were very fond of. Yeah. What, what was it that brought you to the idea of turning it into a film? Well, I, you know, I, I started with the Neapolitan novels, uh, My Brilliant Friend, and yeah. uh, like many people did. And I, um, you know, I had never read anything like them before. I felt like she was saying out loud in those books uh, things, truthful things about being a woman in the world that I just had never heard expressed. And uh, it kind of scared me because some of the things she was talking about were really dark um, and I related to them. And then uh, it also really comforted me to think, okay, somebody is, somebody else is feeling this. Someone else is writing about this and thinking about this. And I thought um, how kind of dangerous and exciting it would be to recreate an experience like that, not alone in your room, uh, you know, before you go to sleep in the dark, but in a room full of people in a movie theater sitting next to maybe your daughter or your mother or your husband um, to feel something really truthful mm -hmm. being said out loud in a situation like that, which is why I wanted to adapt it. Which actually is, it's really daring too, because you have to say something that is not socially accepted. It's not what people wanted to hear, but it's probably what most women feel about, for example, being a mother, because yeah. all the film well, is... Not socially accepted, but I think people want to hear the truth oh, yeah. expressed. Mm -hmm. When you, you know, even like comedians, sometimes they'll say something and you're like, oh my God, did you just say that out loud? That's true, but we're not <laughs> supposed never to say, say that. that. Yeah. You know, and then you're like, makes you laugh or maybe makes you cry or, you know, whatever. It makes you feel alive, mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah. And uh, how do you work about adapting this? Because the book has this two layer two level of of narrative the present and the past in the film there is a very uh, continuous alternative editing of the past and the present how was it for you to keep it keep it together in terms of of writing and of directing it's interesting i mean uh, the the movement from the past to the present was very very carefully constructed and although Certainly, elements of it changed as we were cutting. Where the past came in never changed mm -hmm. from where I had originally conceived it to yeah. be. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of feelings about this. Like, I, I think it's okay if when Jesse Buckley comes in, you don't know who she is, where she is, where you are, why are we here. I like that feeling. Mm -hmm. I actually think about um, the Italian film... Um, Uh, oh God! What is it called? I'm forgetting. Um, it's uh, Matteo Garone. Um, Which one of Matteo Garone? Um, you know, it's God. Now I'm from just so jet lagged. Um, Gamora. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? Yeah, Isn't that Matteo yeah, Garone? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Gamora. Where? When I was watching that movie, I was like, Where am I? Who is that person? How is that person related to this? Wait, where am I going? And of course, if you keep it going too long, you lose people. But if you keep it just a little, everyone's on the edge of their seat, using mm -hmm. their mind and their heart to figure out where you are. And so, in terms of that, I, I wanted that. I wanted 
to I was inspired by that and and um and then eventually you start to settle into okay I think this might be Leda Young mm-hmm. um and I think that was the biggest risk in the film to be honest the yeah. two actresses totally playing the same person but isn't it wild how it works yeah it works it's this kind of poetic it works because actually you ask for some attention from the audience but once that you got it it just goes I and, mean and you it, know why I think it works because Everyone knows they're not the same person. They're two famous actresses, and we know who they are. But fundamentally, what they're saying, what they're doing is honest. Mm-hmm. And so you go with it, you know? It, it, it becomes like a poem, yeah. I think. Yeah. So. And there is another thing that I wanted to ask you about the pace of the film, because it has like this thriller um, taste to it continuously. So you always waiting for something bad to happen because there is a a construction towards this. Uh, Was it something that you were looking for and was it difficult to make it? I, yes. I wanted to use the language of a classic thriller, even with the kind of objectification in the beginning of Nina, her body. Oh, we're used to seeing like, you know, Monica Vitti and a kind of, you know, (laughs) to play with all of that. Um, to set that up as the language and then flip it, you know, mm-hmm. and then change it. And then what ends up happening, what ends up being dangerous is very different than what you think is going to yeah, end absolutely. up being dangerous. Absolutely. You know, and in fact, Nina gets up from her, you know, uh, position of being, uh, you know, objectified and admired and speaks and has needs and hunger and, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, so yeah, I did, I did intend did that. Intend to do that. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot to Maggie Gyllenhaal, director of The Lost Daughter here at the Venice Film Festival, first feature, so good luck for that. Thank you. I'm Angela Cherby for Fred, the Festival Insider. Fred. Cinephile, if you've listened to the past shows, you know all about Celluloid Heroes, the two-part segment where every week I celebrate the life and legacy of an artist who left an indelible mark on the cinematic art form. And for this final Celluloid Heroes segment of all time, <laughs> well, I decided to celebrate the great Abbas Chiarostami. Anyways, the first part of this segment will be a short biographical overview of Chiarostami, and uh, the second part which uh, we'll be getting to later, will find me highlighting three of his works that I feel are quintessential, especially to those who aren't familiar with his works and could do with a hint at a starting point for a deeper exploration of the man's body of work. Abbas Kiarostami was an Iranian filmmaker known for experimenting with the boundaries between reality and fiction. He was born in 1940 and studied graphic arts and painting in Tehran as a young man. In 1969, he was hired by the Institute for the Development of Children and Young Adults to create its filmmaking department, Kanun. Uh, would produce many of his films. And it also became one of Iran's two public structures for film producing and a modern location for film development. In the 1970s, Kiarostami developed an idiosyncratic style and played a prominent role in the renewal of Iranian cinema. A Bread and Ali from 1970, for example, introduced some of his characteristic traits, including improvised performances, documentary textures, and real-life rhythms. Uh, the moral life of children, spiritual and material journeys, car trips... These were some of his favoured and recurring tropes. 
Anyways, despite challenges, Kiarostami opted to stay behind after the Iranian Revolution of 1979, during which Iran uh, became an Islamic uh, republic and wanted to create a unique national genre, a pure genre, without any link to the West. During this time, uh, Kiarostami made some of his most acclaimed works and began to increasingly explore the overlap between films and fiction. In 1987, Kiarostami directed Where is the Friend's Home? This was the first of his Koker trilogy, a self-referential series of modern fables set in the northern Iranian rural town of Koker. Uh, in 1990, he solidified his international reputation with the groundbreaking Close-Up. Inspired by a true story, Close-Up finds a film buff swindling an upper-class family by pretending to be noted director Mohsen Mahmadbaf. All characters of the movie played themselves. And then in 1997, his Taste of Cherry was the co-winner of the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. In the early 2000s, Kiarostami began to experiment with digital filmmaking uh, with the documentary ABC Africa from 2001 and his last fiction film for almost a decade, 10, uh, from 2002, which features 10 scenes shot entirely in the front of a car driven by a young divorced woman and her conversation with a diverse group of women and uh, what results is basically a compelling exploration of contemporary Iran for the ages. And then his final film was uh, Like Someone in Love from 2012, which was shot in Japan and testifies to the director's love and admiration for the country. Kiarostami died in 2016, and aside from his profoundly influential and visionary work in film, he expanded his art to many different media, including poetry, painting, and photography. In a moment, I will be highlighting three of Kiarostami's work that I feel best represent him. But for now, stay tuned for a conversation with the great experimental filmmaker, or as he likes to put it, unconventional filmmaker, Edgar Pera. Red Film Radio. Joining us at this time, the trailblazing filmmaker, Edgar Pera. Edgar, thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, and uh, you just told me before we started recording, you're not doing so uh, so great. Uh, okay. You're going to yeah. see some uh, bad news, let's say? Well, uh, let's say that uh, you, you have to be part of the club. So uh, The club, yeah, 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 <laughs> that the, club. The C club. Right. Well, here's another club that uh, it's great. It's uh, it's a lot better to be a part of uh, the club of the International Film Festival Rotterdam, <laughs> where you will be uh, premiering uh, the uh, your latest film, uh, Kinorama Beyond the Walls of the Real. Uh, actually, we met in 2019 on the occasion of a major retrospective, which was actually a retro future perspective yeah, <laughs> of your work yeah. and i reckon a filmmaker like you would appreciate the scope of festivals like rotterdam right which kind of try to promote edgier and more daring types of filmmaking right sure uh, rotterdam has been uh, my favorite festival for the last decade mm. uh, i show there many many movies that uh after I showing them, it was much more easier to show them in uh, in other places. So, right. yeah, uh, yeah it's, a fruitful uh, collaboration over the years. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, Kinorama uh, Beyond the Walls of the Real. Let me just explain it to, or, or try to introduce it to our listeners. It's 
It's described as a self-reflexive 3D movie reflecting upon uh, the relation of art with the real through images, sounds and conversations with researchers and scholars and experts and so on. Uh, I saw the film and I would love to ask you uh, perhaps to expand on some of the thoughts expressed throughout its duration. Uh, But I wanted to begin our conversation simply and by asking you as a practitioner of this filmmaking form, when... And why did you become interested in 3D filmmaking? Oh, oh why? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, first, I'd like to say that in Rotterdam in 2019, it was a retro perspective uh, because films like Kinorama that were shown before they were uh, finished, now the, the film is finished, and I think it will be my... My last 3D movie. So, uh, to answer to this, to your question, well, it will be my last because of many reasons. Uh, one of them is like no one can see it online, or at least only people with a 3D monitor could watch it. And uh, there's not many people with that. And uh, there's less and less uh, 3D projectors in theaters. So uh, it's it's fading away. And I, I, I believe that it will come only when uh, auto-stereoscopic uh, 3D cinema will appear without uh, glasses. So it's uh, really difficult to, to show. 3D movies and distribute them. And I I started with 3D as... uh, Well, uh, for me, it works uh, as a novelty, or at least it worked as a novelty, like uh, Super 8 uh, worked as a novelty or uh, any kind of uh, video formats or film formats. So... For these uh, last 10 years, I've been uh, researching uh, with a, a small camera, a small 3D camera, uh, and uh, trying to find what what are the frontiers and how can I go beyond them. Uh, but uh, you also uh, refer to uh, your interest in the future, right? Yeah. Because uh, 3D filmmaking, in a sense, you, you kind of link it up with uh, this idea of... Uh, seeing images of the future, kind of exploring the future. But why are you interested in the future? Much in the same way that I asked you, 3D filmmaking, some people are scared of the future. Uh, <laughs> it's it's almost like, I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like the dominant ideology in a lot of the societies nowadays is actually to retreat to a form of the past. But you would actually go against that. Yeah, if you th- think about uh, climate change, if you don't think about the future, you're doomed. So, uh, even if the future is dangerous, we should be ready for the future and we should think about it. And uh, recently, uh, uh, someone told me that the film was optimistic in its uh, point of view. I don't think it's optimistic, it's uh, utopian. Uh, and uh, utopia is uh, uh, the best place for utopias is in cinema because you can you can build uh, something from scratch so I try to imagine a, a world where people will have uh, 
different points of view, but but always trying to to evolve and to to find new ways of uh, solving problems. So, of course, we we have to warn against uh, totalitarian uh, the totalitarian aspects of uh, our societies uh, today. Uh, could you tell us more about this concept of transrealism, uh, which is oh, yeah. uh, occasionally referred to in Kinorama, and uh, it seems to be pretty important, a driving concept in this film? Yeah, it, well, it's linked with uh, magnetism, and uh, and uh, also you, you could you can say that there is uh, transcendental uh, cinema, uh, and there can be trans cinema, trans. Transcendental, but with an S, and uh, that kind of movies uh, want to that the spectator uh, go uh, in an immersive state, but at the same time they have the rhythm uh, for them to at least mentally dance with the, the ideas I give them. So, with the ideas and images and sounds. So, this altered state of mind is what I want to achieve. And, uh, well, it happened once when I sh showed the uh, Lisbon Revisited, which is uh, also a 3D feature. And uh, it was shown for uh, teenagers, like 17 years old, from schools. And one of them told uh, told me, oh, uh, well, I never tried psychedelic drugs, but I believe this is the same as taking one. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I liked the, that idea that you don't need uh, any kind of drugs to achieve the, the, an altered state. Right. Uh, I, uh, I also don't have anything against it. But, uh, uh, are you experienced in it? Uh, uh, well, not, not really that much. I, I, when I was a teenager, I had a very strong psychedelic uh, experience yeah. uh, w with the plant, but uh, that's that's mainly uh, that kind of uh, drugs uh, are not my not your thing. M m no, but yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I did a movie with. Uh, 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 with Terence McKenna, who's in, in also in Kinorama as a guest star, because he's not uh, well, he's not among us. Uh, he died in uh, two thousand, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, he, he was really into the the connection of uh, to the to Earth through uh, plants and uh, hallucinogenic plants. Uh, he thought that this would be a way uh, for humanity evolved like the, the ape evolved taking these plants and start talking. Right. And, and talking as a kind of hallucination. We're going to take a break, but we'll be right back with Edgar Pera in a moment. Fred Film Radio. We're back with Edgar Pera talking about his new film Kinorama, which is premiering at this year's International Film Festival Rotterdam. In the film, Edgar, you suggest that you use 3D as a way to sabotage narrative. What do you mean by that? Well, you have so many layers of image 
in uh, at least in my movies, I, I use many layers of uh, images in different uh, levels of convergence. So in 2D, you're not aware of it because it's just one image, but in 3D, you have like three layers of images together that are on different points of convergence of the screen, one more behind, one more in front of the audience. And uh, I think that uh, that kind of um, uh, construction, artificial construction of an image uh, makes people more aware of the, the, the form itself, of the movie itself. So they're not so voyeuristic uh, in uh, narrative terms. They're more voyeuristic in uh, sensorial uh, terms. So it's more sensorial and less uh, narrative, or at least uh, linear narrative for me. Right, but are you kind of like not against story in the traditional sense? But do you see like a ne negative aspect of working within uh, this idea of the traditional story? No, not really. Uh, I I did uh, more conventional films. Mm -hmm. I, uh, well, I I prefer to use the, the the word unconventional to experimental because I do lots of experiments, but to achieve just one solution. And and it, it, it's almost like Hollywood. Hollywood does lots of experimentation and uh, previews and lots of things to, to achieve a certain goal. Their goal is to make money. My goal is to make art. So I try to make unconventional movies because uh, uh, I think the, the kind of mission an artist has is to find new paths to 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 art and to and to 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 be a pioneer. But I can't remember exactly who says this right now. But I but I do remember what was said. It was like someone in the film uh, in Kinorama alludes to this idea that there's always a challenge in saying anything or in communicating a message and that the art cannot be in a comfortable place when expressing or trying to communicate this message. I don't know whether I'm paraphrasing it correctly, but is that what you're trying to say? And do you agree with this idea? Yeah, uh, well, G.F. Martel uh, is the one who, who said that. And, uh, right, yeah. and uh, I, 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 I like the way he sees things. And... Uh, and uh, maybe the film is more optimistical because of him, because he he he, he tries to 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 see how you can change the future, and uh, one way of changing the future is doing uh, art that opens the the minds of the, the person of the spectator, and uh, then you have to find a place which which is not comfortable. Because you want, you want to go always uh, beyond uh, what you know and mm -hmm. uh, go go somewhere else. But uh, I'm doing now uh, a fiction feature uh, uh, called the Nothingness Club, which is uh, I wouldn't say more linear, but much more narrative, and uh, it, it's. Uh, in uh, in the mind of our greatest poet, Fernando Pessoa. Yeah, so... I, I believe it's almost always like I'm playing a game 
uh, with the movie and then the movie is playing a game with the spectator. Right, 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 right. But but in using more conventional, let's say, elements in this uh, future project that you talked about, that you refer to, uh, perhaps that's not necessarily a comfortable place for you, right? Considering uh, a lot of what you've done in the past. For me, what's not comfortable is uh, hmm. to do uh, films, uh, commercial films. It's it's the thing that I'm not really used to do. I only did uh, one and another for TV. Hmm. And that kind of popular films, I have to be another person. Right. So, yeah, it's a challenge also. And I, I said, uh, challenge accepted and, uh, I did that, but, uh, uh, I try, I try not to repeat myself, but also I try to use what I learned in previous films. So it's, uh, in between situation. Okay. So we talked about 3D, but what is your impression of VR? I did research, uh, VR and even, uh, started to think about the project in VR, but uh, after using for uh, well, I, I start using it and go and, and uh, trying different games, and I realized that I was not having pleasure. But I, I think it's a problem I have also. Uh, uh, I didn't like Walkman also because. Uh, it would not, uh, I wouldn't be connected to the, the real world. So I don't even like headphones. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because. I, I, you know what, Edgar? I am the complete opposite. I, I'm constantly wearing headphones. Uh, what does that say about me? Well, is that you don't mind being um, outside of the physical, at least uh, audio world, because. Yeah. I don't li I don't listen the the same uh, noises and the same uh, I don't have the same uh, audio environment. Mm -hmm. And with VR it's visual also. Well, I I don't like to feel that my senses are channeled by machines. So it must have been particularly difficult for you then, you know, the, these past few months and, you know, years at this point with the pandemic and the lockdowns, right? No, not really, because if if I'm, I'm not wearing headphones or uh, or VR or whatever, I I have uh, I I have many means of creating art. So I have my keyboards, I have computer, I can edit movies, I can paint, and uh, I can write, and so. But now, now in, I'm in quarantine and I'm not really used to that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah but, uh, but I'm okay. So. All right. So I, I think you said that uh, earlier that uh, this will be your last 3D movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what are you moving on to now? Well, I'm moving, uh, uh, I moved to, to this Nothingness Club uh, feature. Which, uh, the thing is, uh, I think I've completed the cycle, uh -huh. but I'm also, um, going to my past to, to search for what, uh, what kind of, uh, uh, what different ways to, to tell a story. 
to find it and uh, I, I came back to a film I, I did like 20 years ago or more uh, The Window Janela mm -hmm. and, uh, which is about the fragmentation of the self in, in terms of identity and in terms of desire Now, the Nothingness Club, it's about the fragmentation of the self also, but we about uh, Fernando Pessoa, who had like uh, 100 heteronyms. And heteronyms are alter egos, literary alter egos, with different uh, places of birth, uh, horoscopes, uh, uh, different styles of writing, antagonic uh, political points of view. It's a whole universe of persons uh, in just one. Huh. So, uh, for me, he's one of the greatest uh, writers of 20th century. Yeah. And one of the more complex ones. And, uh, and so, I, I, I wanted to find a way of uh, creating different universes, but uh, they all belong to a mental one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's about the mind again, and uh, I did shoot lots of things in slow motion, even if then, in the end, I didn't use most of it, but uh, I had, uh, there are still moments where he, he, the time is slower, and I wanted to, to convey the impression of, again, of some kind of trance in the spectator. Well, that's that's awesome. We'll be looking forward to that. Edgar, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Fred. Cinephile, we are back with the second part of our Celluloid Heroes segment, where every week I celebrate the life and legacy of an artist who left an indelible mark on the history and development of the cinematic art form. This week's segment is a celebration of the life and legacy of Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami, who did much to revitalize Iranian cinema before and after the Iranian Revolution. Uh, there's a good chance that the three films I have chosen to highlight for this second part of the segment won't surprise those who already are familiar with Kiarostami's work. In fact, this segment is mostly for those who aren't all that familiar with the people whose lives and legacies I decided to celebrate. In any case, as far as Kiarostami is concerned, Close Up from 1990 is a near obligatory choice for, for me for the first of these three spots and the best starting point for a deeper exploration on what the man was all about. This fiction documentary hybrid uses a sensational real-life event, the arrest of a young man on charges that he fraudulently impersonated the well-known filmmaker Mohsen Mahmoud Baf as the basis for a stunning, multi-layered investigation into movies, identities, artistic creation and existence in which the real people from the case play themselves. With its universal themes and fascinating narrative knots, Close Up has resonated with viewers around the world and continues to resonate to this day. And then for a more meditative Kiarostami, I would suggest checking out Taste of Cherry from 1997. Here, Kiarostami follows an enigmatic man as he drives around the hilly outskirts of Tehran, looking for someone who will agree to bury him after he commits suicide, a taboo under Islam. Uh, extended conversations with three passengers, a soldier, a seminarian and a taxidermist, elicit different views on mortality and in individual choice. Uh, 
Operating at once as a closely observed realistic story and a fable populated by archetypal figures, Taste of Cherry challenges the viewer to consider what often goes unexamined in everyday life. The film was also awarded the Palme d'Or at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival and it's just considered a masterpiece. For my third pick... I was tempted to pick 10 from 2002, which certainly would have been included had it not been for the uh, restrictive preset number of choices I allow myself for this segment. But I do have a soft spot for Where is the Friend's Home from 1987, the first film in Abbas Kiarostami's sublime interlacing Coquer trilogy. Um, the film takes a simple premise. It's about a boy searching for the home of his classmate whose school notebook he has accidentally taken. And what Kiarostami does is he transforms it into a miraculous child's eye adventure of the everyday. Uh, as our young hero zigzags determinately uh, across two towns, aided and sometimes misdirected by those he encounters, his quest becomes both a revealing portrait of rural Iranian society in all its richness and complexity, and a touching parable about the meaning of personal responsibility. Sensitive and profound, where is the friend's house uh, is shot, or where's the friend's home, is shot through with all the beauty tension and wonder a single day can contain and it's just beautiful so Abbas Kiarostami we speak your name and we salute you we'll be back with more Big Fred Tuesday in a moment Fred Riz Ahmed was uh, shortlisted for a BAFTA award for his performance in the recent Michael Pierce film Encounter. Here's a clip from my remote interview with the director, specifically where we talk about the character Riz Ahmed portrays and the actor's performance in general. Uh, speaking of which, actually, uh, we were talking about it earlier, the complexity of the character that Riz plays in this film. He is really, really complex when I think about it because he's, he's so ambivalent. I mean, traditionally, it's some, it's in sometimes and throughout the history of cinema, I guess, the figure of the hero would not have been questioned as much as perhaps it was in the seventies. But even now, I guess, uh, in, in your film, he is placed in this situation where he could potentially be the unquestioned hero. But then as the story goes on, you see that there is more to it than that. Do you think that uh, there's a reason why, and I'm asking you, obviously, as a filmmaker, there is this maybe honesty in portraying masculinity in these types of uh, contexts, in these types of narratives? Yeah, maybe, you know, there is a cultural conversation, of course, that's going on about masculinity or you know a buzzword is toxic masculinity and i think a lot of that uh, you know is is fascinating to see that evolve and there's a kind of shift in the culture about what is a positive portrayal of you know masculinity i suppose what maybe is different now is that there's more of an embrace uh, at least in films where a kind of hyper masculine character can show vulnerability you know and i was quite interested that that be the climax of the movie um and that was going to be the hurdle that that character had to get over you know that were you know he he's so driven to protect his children and the um the identities of being a protector and being being a hero and being a savior are very powerful identities for Riz's character but they've kind of trapped him as well it's meant that he couldn't yeah. expose his vulnerabilities uh to anyone and yeah so whether you know i don't know if we would have made this film the same way if it was 10 years ago or 
15 years ago. Um, I think that's, you know, that, that there's, it's a kind of extra freedom that you have now that you can have a richer portrayal of a male character mm. on screen. Yeah. And when you say trap, then do you also mean maybe trapped uh, in uh, expectations that people have of what, I don't know, a man is supposed to be, a man in his late 30s is supposed to be, is supposed to have, at some point in the film, without giving much away, uh, too much away, there is a character that lists things that he doesn't have and that could potentially make him dangerous. And I feel like a lot of people could identify with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's maybe, I know it's, it's a generational thing as well. Like, I know yeah. that when I talk to friends about our parents, you know, that they... Uh, there's a certain threshold uh, when it comes to talking honestly and candidly about your feelings or what you're going through. That is just uh, very, you know, it's a very different threshold than we, that we have as a generation. But I'm sure for, you know, our parents, they were more, you know, liberated to talk about their emotions than at least their parents were. So it's, it's you know, it's, it slowly opens up. Uh, and I'm sure the next generation uh, are much more like in tune and engaged with speaking about, you know, mental health issues or any, any vulnerabilities that they have. But I think, yeah, I think his character, I mean, me and Riz created a kind of rich backstory for his character from, you know, from when he was born and, you know, what drew him to go into the military and every, um, every stage of his military career. And what we landed on was that he was someone that was, put into different foster homes and they weren't all good environments. And he never had uh, a father figure uh, to protect him. And he was very weak and he was very vulnerable and exposed, um, particularly being a South Asian kid in the area that he grew up. And so we thought that was a really interesting sort of origin story for the character. And the thing that drove him was that he was going to become the person that he never had when he was a kid. And he was going to become a protector and that's what it was important to him. And as much as that's great and there's something noble in that, it's kind of, it's, it's defined him too rigidly that he can't show weakness. And that's become his flaw. And he must need his children, the next generation, to, um, um, he must expose that flaw to them uh, to help heal that wound. And so he's kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so kind of those kind of backstories which are really interesting. That me and Riz didn't want to explain in the script in the film, and I only wanted to uh, allude to it briefly in the script. But it's important for me and him to know, as the yeah. you know actor and director, to know what's brought the character to that stage. To listen to the full interview, check out Fred.fm forward slash UK. That's Fred.fm forward slash UK. Fred Film Radio. Cinephile, we have reached the end of the final episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. So it's time for our final conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. And this is a very special one indeed. Elvis Presley appeared on a number of films, and many of them are rather unrewarding and underwhelming. The most noteworthy exception is... Jailhouse Rock from 1957. Primarily distinguished by a memorable title song and creative production numbers, this is a rags-to-riches story where Elvis plays a bad boy who becomes a teenage rock star after serving time in prison for manslaughter. Jailhouse Rock is highly popular with Presley fans like myself because it depicts the king at a time in his career when his talent was still raw and untamed. In most of his later cinematic endeavours, his business manager, Colonel Tom Parker, forbade 
Presley to stray too far from a safe image. But the film's engrossing plot allows its star to play a character with a degree of emotional depth. Presley, however, refused to watch the completed film after his co-star Judy Tyler was killed in a car accident just weeks after shooting for the movie had ended. With all that being said, Jailhouse Rock, directed by Richard Thorpe from 1957, is our conclusive popcorn classic. I give it five cups of popcorn, five cups of soda, and five wooden chairs for those who can't find the partner to dance with. Well, cinephile, I'm not, uh, I know I'm not much for the mawkish and have no truck for the sentimental, but if something is true and not sentimental, I say well and truly, Fretfilm Radio, I speak your name and I salute you. Here's looking at you, kid. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile always. And stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the festival insider. Fred, 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 Fred. Fred Film Radio, I'm Matt Micucci from the 64th Berlin International Film Festival. Io sono Valentina Pompili, al Tokyo International Film Festival. Soy Antonio Becker y estoy aquí con... International Film Festival in Berlin. My name is Beatrice Biel. I'm Bekon Fred Film Radio. Fred, Fred, the festival experience... In 23 languages. Fred Film Radio. 24-7 on Fred.fm and smartphone apps.